while we're in this series um, of Daniel and Esther, and then uh, next next we have Nehemiah, and uh, and I've got I've got a, a quite a few uh, characters we're going to do, and we don't know how long this is going to take. I'm going to be honest; it may take you know between now and, and this time next year, uh, and, and it may take you know even longer than that. But what I do know is this: God wants us to get to know these people. Because their story can affect our story. And we're going to answer the question that I try to answer all the time. What does this have to do with me? What does this story have to do with me? What does this passage have to do with me? Because I'm going to tell you, I ask that question about myself all the time when I read God's word, any part of God's word. And so in this, um, in this series on Esther, there is a Daniel sort of a Daniel connection um, with, uh, with Esther. Uh, the time of Esther was about 50 or 60 years after, um, after Daniel. And so uh, when we last saw Daniel, uh, Daniel was kind of in his early 80s, and that was when he had the, the, the lion's den incident, and uh, he had uh, King uh, Darius there. Um, but Daniel uh, obviously passed away, and then... Um, the, during, while he was there in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was attacked by the Persian Empire, by King Cyrus, which instantly, uh, interestingly enough, Isaiah the prophet prophesied um, many years before, before King Cyrus is even born, that Cyrus would come and he would actually be the one to allow some of the Jews to go back home. And that's exactly what it did, even when Daniel was there. Uh, so the Babylonian Empire that, that took Judah and the, and the people of Jerusalem to exile, um, this empire was overtaken by Persia, King Cyrus, and um, Daniel passed on. And then the uh, Persian Empire was in the city of Susa, which is about 200 miles southeast of Babylon. And so the capital of Susa, the capital of this Persian Empire, is where we find the story of Esther. So who was Esther and why is she important? Why is there a book in the Bible with her name on it? Uh, you, you would think it'd be pretty, um, pretty important. She has her name on a book. She'd be pretty important in God's word. Well, uh, actually, Esther was just a normal girl. Uh, she did not grow up in any kind of royalty. She was, just, she was a Hebrew probably in her early uh, 20s who grew up as an orphan. Her, um, her older cousin raised her after her parents died. Esther was probably just living a very ordinary life, an obscure life with no plans at all of making a huge impact, making a huge splash in this world. And for all we know, she may have even felt like an outcast. You know, living as, a, as an orphan in a foreign land, you're probably going to feel that way. But... We will see that God, and this is important, God can use the most lowly and the outcast to save the world. He can use the most lowly and the outcast to save the world. Uh, Jesus proved that. When, when, when Jesus came into, into the world, you know, he, he was the mighty king, but he came as a, as a child in a lowly manger. And evidently, um, obviously, he grew up in this world, a sinless life, and, and he was a savior of the world, and he saved all mankind with his death, burial, and resurrection, and, and our sins were on his cross. And so this, 
this theme of using the lonely um, to save the world is something that even Esther, you'll see in her life. Uh, uh, regarding this book of Esther, one of the things I find fascinating about this book is that it has zero reference to God. Zero. God is not even mentioned in this book. Uh, you will not find God as a main or minor character. And, and, and I actually, actually like that. You know why? And here's the reason why. Because even though God is not mentioned, we see his fingerprints all over this story as he is working out the details through his providence. Providence meaning, you know, he can see ahead of time. He can see what's ahead. So this is one reason why this series on the life of Esther, I believe, is going to speak to you. Um, It probably best resembles your life. Probably best resembles your life. You know, sometimes it's hard to relate to characters in the Bible when there's supernatural things going on. I mean, you know, Moses, when we get to Moses and we talk about him later on in the fall, you know, it's easy to think of Esther and to relate with Esther and know that um, she's just an average girl and Moses was someone, had a burning bush, he had the Red Sea party, he had all kinds of stuff. He, I mean, God wrote the Ten Commandments and he carried them down the mountain. And, and it's hard to say, yeah, I, I can be that kind of Moses, I can relate with that. And it's a little bit more difficult, we can, but I think it's gonna be easier for you to relate with Esther because it best represents your life. You, like Esther, are just going through your ordinary life, not expected to make an incredible impact on the world. Like Esther, God is probably silent on most days. Um, You probably don't hear the audible voice of God or meet a prophet um, speaking the words of God. And like Esther, you probably... um, like to pray to God, and, and you're, you're most likely praying to him, and you believe that he exists, but beyond that, God is just, he's kind of up there in the heaven watching this show on earth with a big bucket of popcorn. And it's easy to just kind of say, well, God's there, I'm down here, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and yeah, talk to him, but other than that, there, there's, really, there's really no major presence of God sometimes in my life. And so you may feel like that. If that is you, then you're going to really relate with Esther. If you feel like God does not know or care what's going on with you, then this story will show how God does speak in the life he is orchestrating. And um, so if you feel like God is silent in your life, know this, he is working behind the scenes for your good. And that right there is is probably the main theme of Esther. God is working behind the scenes. And just like Esther, you are here and a part of that story for such a time as this. It's it's similar to when I shared with you the story of of how we were able to have the land available to us. And as I shared a couple of weeks ago, the, this particular piece of property, I've been looking at it for, for a couple of years. 
And I just thought, well, maybe I should just call them. I just felt impressed. Um, I'd been praying, God, what's, what's kind of our next move and what are we going to do? And that's a common prayer that I pray in, in our elders and staff. And so as I began to pray and seek the Lord, I felt like just driving by their property multiple times. And every time I drive by, I just felt like God was telling me, you need to, you need to make this phone call. So I, I was able to contact this family. And as soon as I contacted them, I, and I just introduced myself, Pastor Frank Bennett, Lake Point Church in, in Emerson, you don't know me, but I just want to ask you a question. Would you be interested in selling your property? Because we're looking for a place to put our church down the road. And just like I shared, first words out of his mouth was, how did you know we just finished our conversation um, as a family? And we just decided <laughs> to put that land on the market. Like today. I was like, well, sorry, I didn't know that. But God does. God speaks through providence. God speaks through things. God is working behind the scenes. Because see, I didn't have to talk them into anything. God already did that. God already did that. And, and I could tell you countless stories e- even in our life. You could probably share stories with me and with all of us, which I believe that's what heaven's gonna be a lot like. We're gonna share stories of, man, all the dots will connect and you're gonna be able to understand and see the big picture and how God moved here and God did this and God orchestrated this and it's so amazing. The thing that we can see of Esther's story is that we can see 30,000 feet up Esther's story and what God was setting up for her and for the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire and how God rescued them and saved them. But she couldn't see that. And I know you can't see, or I can't see that 30,000 feet, but we know who is 30,000 feet up. And that is God working in his providence. And so if you don't hear God speak, if you, don't, you, you feel like God might be a little bit silent in your life, trust in him and know that he's working for your good behind the scenes. If you really wanna watch for his fingerprints, know that he is moving. When God calls the shots, nobody can stop the action. When God calls the shots, nobody can stop the action. Some of you need to know that. God is writing the script and setting the scene in place as we go through this mundane life. So what's the story background of, of, of Esther? Here's a few characters. Uh, obviously the main uh, character is Esther. We've talked a little bit about her. Her older cousin is uh, Mordecai. Uh, uh, obviously a, a Hebrew. And uh, then we have King Xerxes. Uh, he is a king of Persia. And then the king's main advisor, um, Haman, uh, is also in the story. So let's dive into a little bit of Esther. We're gonna be in Esther chapter one, and uh, we're gonna start right there at verse one. Um, Esther chapter one, one through four. One through four. So uh, let's dive right in real quick. And it says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who's ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel, capital of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. 
the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So obviously, he, he doesn't believe in God. He believes he is a God. And so for 180 days, this king, um, which is six months, I mean, for six months, this powerful king, he gave a banquet and he's displaying his might. So imagine for yourself parades and, and soldiers marching in line. You, you, you've seen some pictures of that, some other countries who do that. And uh, maybe you see some, uh, some swordmanship uh, display, maybe some showcases of swordmanship and, and archery. Imagine a New Orleans-style, Mardi Gras-style parade on steroids for six months. While the military officers were there, plans were actually being made uh, for a military action against the Greeks. We look at, at history books, and one thing about the Persians is that they've kept great, great records. And so we have lots of records, and they're actually getting ready to go attack the Greeks. And when this six months of display of power and might was completed, the king did something else. He threw the biggest party anyone had ever seen. This party lasted for seven days. Verse five, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So this party was a, a anything goes kind of party as we read more about this uh, drunkenness and gorging on food was everyday practice, and everyone was invited. The queen, on the other hand, actually held her very own party in another part of the palace for the ladies. Um, and on the seventh day of the party, this is where things kind of get, get a little bit crazy. On the seventh day of the party, the king is drunk, major drunk. He's probably drunk every day. But after seven days of partying, the king commands that Queen Vashti, that's her name, Queen Vashti come to the main party wearing her crown and displaying her beauty. So imagine the king is surrounded by a bunch of other drunk men. Not, ladies aren't around. And he commands that his wife, his bride, the queen, comes and displays her beauty. Um, but she refused causing the king to be very, very angry. Why does she refuse? Some biblical scholars believe that the king wanted Vashi to come wear her crown and only her crown to that meeting. Uh, some uh, biblical scholars believe that, that she may have been pregnant with Artaxerxes, who was a king uh, with their son, who was a king after Xerxes, and actually the king who uh, allowed Nehemiah to go to, to Jerusalem. We'll said him next. But whatever it was, she did not come. She was the first to stand for women's rights, you could say. She refused to be a sexual object to a bunch of drunk men. The outcome of that situation was an immediate removal of Vashti as queen 
as suggested by one of his advisors. And we read this in, in verse 19 and 20. Therefore, it, it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give a royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. I think personally, this advisor, he came up with this strategy, who came up with this idea, he probably had problems at home. Look, my wife's not respecting me as well either. So, you know, we've got issues here. So, King, why don't you make this law that all of our ladies have to respect us? All right, we'll start with your wife, and just so your wife don't even need to go into your presence. In fact, she just needs to be replaced. Yeah, men, I don't, um, I don't suggest we do any of that, obviously. You know, um, but obviously these, these guys, a bunch of male chauvinist pigs, and who think only of themselves, and obviously this was a stupid move. Now, you have to remember that the king is extremely drunk during this whole ordeal, which the lesson learned is when you get drunk, you do stupid stuff. (laughs) Obviously, the king was not in his right mind. But he made that law, and according to Persian government rule, once a law is written, you cannot cannot, um, disband that law. You cannot erase that law. You could write another law to... um, maybe supersede that one or to change that one, but you, you cannot get rid of law once it's there. And so King Xerxes um, made a stupid move. So after this six-month display of mighty power and the seven-day party and the queen being excused and from his presence, King Xerxes went off to war for a couple of years against the Greeks. But the military campaign, as we learned through history books, the military campaign was unsuccessful. Uh, He was very discouraged and humiliated by the loss. You see, the the seven-day party was actually a, a celebration party of victory over the Greeks before they went to fight the Greeks. That's what that was. You know, the, the, the six-month display of military power, while they were there in the capital, they were planning this attack. They were planning to take over the Greeks. And then they threw a party. Man, we're going to do, we're gonna, let's party now, because we know we're going to beat them. That's why he was utterly humiliated. He had to get things right back again. But you never throw a party. You never celebrate before the before you go off to war, you never celebrate a win before the game. Kind of reminds me back in 2006, we lived in Dallas, Texas, and the Dallas Mavericks NBA team, they were playing the, the, the uh, Miami Heat in the, uh, in the finals. And the uh, best of seven game series, uh, the first two games were at Dallas. Dallas was a favorite to win the, the finals. And um, Dallas Mavericks won the first two home games, and um, they were feeling really, really good about themselves. In fact, so good that they published in the local Dallas newspaper the parade route of what they were going to do whenever they won the the world championship. Um, The Miami Heat coach um, 
didn't have practice that next day. They, they flew home and they heard about that being published in a newspaper. And that next day in Miami, the, because the next game was in Miami, the, the coach did not even have practice. You know what he did? He, he cut out, he made copies of that newspaper article, the parade route, and put it on every person's locker, the Miami Heat. And that's all, that's all he did. Players showed up, saw that, and that was all they needed because they won the next four games. And Dallas Mavericks were the ones with the egg on their face. And so just, just like probably the Dallas Mavericks felt back in 2006, King Xerxes probably felt very similar. He needed some comfort. He needed some attention. He needed someone to just talk to and just cuddle up to and to say, hey, it's gonna be all right, honey. It's gonna be all right. But the problem is he got rid of his wife. She couldn't come in his presence anymore. So what is he gonna do? His advisors, these geniuses, come to him and they say, all right, let's do this. So we find this in, in chapter two, verse two. It says, in verse two, then the king's personal assistants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. So basically, we're gonna hold this beauty pageant. We're gonna hold this beauty pageant, king, and you're gonna be able to pick a new queen. I mean, it kind of sounds like a, a, a Disney princess movie, doesn't it? Oh, we get a chance. We get a chance to go to the ball. We get a chance to have a beauty pageant. And if he chooses me, I get to be queen. It sounds so inviting. So, enter Esther. We get introduced Esther through her cousin, Mordecai. Verse seven. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadashah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been claimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So Esther, and Esther was her, Esther was her, um, Persian name, Esther was, as I said earlier, an orphan, and her older cousin brought her in and raised her. Mordecai, a very godly Jewish man, followed the Lord, walked in the fear of the Lord, and he raised Esther as his own. So imagine if you're Esther, put your, put your, Self and Esther's high heels. Now, I know, guys, it's going to be hard for you to do that, but listen, this, this message 
I promise you, as we get on, it's going to speak to you and it's going to be plug into your life. But put yourself in her shoes. You have no parents. You live in a foreign land. You could be like all the other Jews who've been given permission to go back to your homeland, like Cyrus did. Cyrus gave them, and a place that you'd never known because all you know is, is Susa. But there's a four-month trek and lots of manual labor there in the city of Jerusalem. So just like many people, many of the Israelites, many of the Hebrews, they decided to just stay there in the province of Persia. Many went back to rebuild, and we're, we're going to get to that next series. But she felt like she was stuck. Maybe you, you, you could feel like you're stuck you're drop-dead gorgeous and probably have other young men courting you, and then all of a sudden, you're taken to the king's palace. I'm sure there were other girls living in Persia who would love to be queen, but for some reason, I can't see Esther being excited about this. I just can't see Esther being excited about this. When you really put yourself in her shoes... I think her world is turned upside down with this mandate. I mean, Xerxes, and everybody knows this, he's a jerk. A male chauvinist pig, doesn't believe in God, and is acting only in frustration right now. Esther would give up her future as a Hebrew wife, married to a Hebrew man, with little Hebrew children learning all about God and the amazing stories of the Israelites. She would spend one night with the king, to see if she's the one. And if she's not the one, she would spend the rest of her life in a harem as one of the king's concubines. This just doesn't sit well. If I were Usher, it just doesn't sit well with me. Maybe for some of the other ladies that grew up in, and they're part of the Persian Empire and they're not Hebrew, but it just doesn't sit well. This passage says she was taken. This is close to sexual slavery as you can get. How does Esther respond? How does Esther respond? Well, her response is she acts like a true lady. She acts like a true lady with elegance and beauty that came from within. The first to take notice was a man in charge of preparing the, the beauty pageant contestants, Haggai. In verse 9, chapter 2, we see she pleased him, Haggai, and won, him, won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So she's already winning the hearts, even, after, even before meeting the king. She would have time to win over lots of other hearts as we read verse 12 and 13. Check this out. Before a young, and this is sort of the process that, that they go through in this beauty pageant. Before a young woman's turn came into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king 
anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Wow. Imagine a whole year of being pampered. Ladies, can you imagine that? A whole year of being pampered? You know, as a guy, there's not many, there's not many things that, that I do to kind of get pampered, you know? I know there's some guys that maybe they'll go have their feet rubbed or that kind of stuff. There's only one person who's going to touch my feet. And so there's not many things that I do, but there's one thing that I, I really like to, to go do, and I feel like it's close to being pampered as I possibly can, and that's get my hair cut. Because when I get my hair cut, I mean, the hair is washed and massaged, and I mean, like, and, and my our hair stylist Angie Tucker's in this room, and she does a great, great job. If you need a hair stylist, highly recommend Angie Tucker. But uh, but Angie, she 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 takes like I don't know, well, I don't know what she puts in my hair. I mean, it's she washes my hair like four or five times. She does a great job, and I'm just sitting there with my head, and I'm just going, "Don't stop! This is great." And so that is about as close to I get as, as being pampered. But ladies, imagine an entire year of being pampered by servants. Um, the, the, the girls are probably enrolled in, in uh, continuing classes to uh, learn proper etiquette. Uh, they were probably on a special diet. They probably sunbathed, had daily facial masks and massages, and don't forget the daily long hot baths. You didn't have to do any chores because everything is done for you. Imagine that. A year. Doesn't that sound nice, ladies? So, but you're surrounded by a bunch of sorority girls who are all fighting for the same thing, to be queen. And this is the bad part of this. They all want to win the heart of the king. I could just imagine the scene in that harem of about uh, one writer, one theologian, one historian in the first century actually said there were about 400 women who they, they sort of whittled it down from the kingdom. About 400 women came in and were all focused on outdoing one another and making the others jealous and inferior. Imagine that scene, 400 ladies fighting to be, to be queen, to win the heart of the king, and they're outdoing one another probably putting, putting each other down, making uh, the other girls feel inferior. I could just imagine that, but not Esther. She did not fight for the right to use certain jewelry or clothing that others wanted to use. You can read that in this chapter. She did, she did not put others down in order to elevate herself. She used only what the harem managers suggested. She even valued their opinion. She won the hearts of everyone who saw her. I imagine she probably won the hearts of most of the other girls. This is how a truly God-fearing, God-honoring lady responds to a life-altering situation that threatens to take away her identity and the little girl dreams of raising a Hebrew family. Again, put yourself in her shoes. She has dreams. As a little girl, as a housewife, 
raising a family, her husband coming in from work. She's married to one man. She is, she is that man's very life, life partner. She raises kids with the stories of Moses and, the, and, and, and of David and of Solomon and all the splendor of what Israel was. And her little girl dreams are going away because some king has taken her into his harem. But she responds in a truly God-fearing, God-honoring, lady-like way. Yes, she was drop-dead gorgeous, but there were probably other very beautiful women in that harem. But her main beauty came from within. And the king noticed in verse 17. It says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. She did it. God did it. What an amazing story, Queen Esther. Queen Esther has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? But this, y'all, is just the beginning of the story. You would think the story went in there. She's queen. She goes on with her life. But God is just getting started. God is just getting started. Because in the background, God has moved certain things in motion to where they all come together. And they're just getting started. And she is placed at this location for such a time as this. I'm just reminded of, of what God is doing in the life of our church. Just like, just like Esther, we're pretty young. And because we're the bride of Christ, we're very beautiful because we're the bride of Christ. And God has orchestrated some things for us. And he is moving. And we even see evidences of that. But God is just getting started. God is just getting started. Some of you may be sitting here and you have sort of a, a new life in Christ. You're sitting there and you're, and you're thinking, I just asked Christ to be in my heart and my life. And you've got so many questions. There's so many things kind of going on and, 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 and you're not really sure how God is speaking or what he does and how all this works. But let me tell you something. Just like Esther, God is just getting started. Your new life in Christ has been in motion for a while now. I've talked to, to some of you who you can see how God is speaking to various people in your life and God is moving certain things in motion 
and bringing it all together, making it all clear. This story's not over. It's just the beginning. Your new life in Christ is just the beginning, just like Esther. Something's about to happen to her cousin Mordecai that will set the second plot into motion. This next incident, along with the fact that Esther has kept her identity as a Jew a secret, that's going to have play a big role as we get into next week. She has kept her identity as a secret combined with the amazing story that God orchestrated and he's putting in place with, with Mordecai. We'll get to that next week. You can see how God has orchestrated this for such a time as this. But what can you do with this first part of Esther? Let me give you two things, and we'll close out. What can you, how can you respond? How can you be like Esther? Even you, guys. Number one, be authentic. Be authentic. Esther was authentic. She was comfortable being herself. She wasn't trying to please others. She was only pleasing her God. If you want to be like Esther, ask God to give you that kind of authenticity. Don't try to please others. You're not going to get anywhere. Please the Lord. To place more emphasis on what's happening deeper than your heart and less emphasis on the externals, the superficials, the temporary. Ladies, don't try to focus on the, on the externals, the superficials, the temporaries. Guys, don't try to be pleasing certain friends. Just please the Lord. Walk in the beauty of your Savior. And you will be beauty from within, exposed out. So number one, be authentic. Your authenticity is beautiful. And last, trust God. Esther, trust God. Are you wondering what good can come from all that you live with? The kids you can't handle, the marriage that lacks harmony. Whether you see it or not, God is at work in your life this very moment. God specialized in turning the mundane into the meaningful in Esther's life. God not only moves in unusual ways, he also moves in uneventful days. So if your days are a little bit uneventful, a little bit mundane, that's good. That's great. Because God is working in the background. God is working to do great things. While you're going through your life and trying to make sure you fix all the little pieces of your life, understand this, that there is over and in, above and below your life, a divine architect ordering every detail. And if you belong to him and are in the covenant of his love, he is accomplishing his perfect will. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that. Stop worrying about the things around you. How about you? But I needed this message this week. There was a lot of things I was worried about. A lot of things were just, I mean, there's lots of changes going. And they're good changes, but just, they're not happening when I want them to happen. And that's a problem. But I've had to just 
tell God, God, I just, I can't be in control. I'll give it to you. You are in control. And I acknowledge that. And I'm going to trust in you. So maybe you need to do that. Maybe this first part of Esther's story, maybe you're just caught up in other things and worried and frustrated or whatever. Maybe you just need to take a deep breath and just take it in and trust in God. Know that he is designing something behind the scenes. And he's got this. He's got this. The story takes an amazing turn. I cannot wait to get into the next couple of weeks of the story of Esther because there's a lot there we can unpack. But for right now, this week, just tell God, God, I trust you. You work it behind the scenes. And you got this.